Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome back to our fourth series of our top tens lists put together by our chief editor, Kevin Turner. And as we build up towards the great race, the greatest race, centenary year, uh, Le Mans, that is the topic, the subject of all of these top tens. And Kevin, for once, you've not done this list. Not No, not for once, because there have been other ones in other series. Yeah, but- every now and again we do, don't we? In, in each series you've had sort of one or two sort of guests that have done the list and then I've been the poacher turn gamekeeper or something the way like around, that whatever you want yeah. to call it sort of thing and actually this was a list that i had gamekeeper turn poacher there yeah let's go. go that way yeah. around uh, <laughs> and uh, uh yeah so this was on my list of things that i should do for Le Mans, and then i realized that it had already been done by our our other guest which made me very happy because it <laughs> saved me an awful lot of time save you the work <laughs> well back in 2019 our next guest gary watkins you put this list together so what's the top 10 you're delivering today although people will have seen it in the title of the podcast but what is it it's the best 10 le mans simple as that the simple. best 10 races the best 10 it's races. about close races it's about fierce races it's about races with great stories bizarre things that happen to to them but the the me- I, I guess it's really the memorable races the races that stand out that's that's what it really is we're calling it the best are we calling it the best yes le mans but it's, i think it's, so the top yeah. 10 the it top is, 10 races it is really that yeah absolutely and our final guest today james newbold who is back on the sports car beat a full time this year so countdown is on to le mans you've got your sleeping bag ready well, you had it out for spa after our bizarre Airbnb accommodation. <laughs> Bring your own bedding. Well, quite, yeah. Hopefully it won't resort to the point where I need it in the media centre. Although I have I have slept on the media centre floor at Le Mans before. Because you've um, covered Le Mans before for us, although not a full season of sports cars, but you, you do the, that one event for us. I have, yes. Although it's probably fair to say that none of the Le Mans that I've reported on for Autosport would make it into the top 10. <laughs> I was responsible for... Uh, an LMPT report a couple of years ago where about 10 minutes after or 10 minutes before sorry uh, the report was due to go to press the winner was disqualified and we had to put a roundel on the report to say this is basically completely invalid discard everything (laughs) and go to the pit and paddock section for who actually the winner was that was a very stressful press day oh I can't imagine actually we should probably say that this is we're we're really talking about overall races aren't we our overall contests because we're not in we're not going we're not going to pick out oh that race in GTE Pro was really good in 2015 that's not what this list is perhaps we should do an alternative alternative other great class things at Le Mans which is a separate thing a so this is overall stuff so we're not going to be talking about LMP2D being decided by seven tenths of a second on the final lap in 2021 and that sort of stuff this is overall stuff in 10th place what's the first year you are going to tell us about and we're going to go back a fair way I'm going all the way back to 1933 a victory for Alfa Romeo a battle between two Alfa Romeos an amazing story and an amazing, clo- amazingly close finish. Just 401 metres in the old days. Uh, the Automobile Club de la West used to 
declare the margin of victory in metres, bizarrely, that is strange. And it was a record that wasn't broken for like 30 years. Tazio Nuvolari and Raymond Summer won in their Alfa Romeo 8C by the aforementioned 401 metres from uh, Luigi Canetti and Philip, Philippe Variant, who's sometimes called Philippe Varent de Gunsberg. I, did, I said Variant before, I mean Varent. That was an ultra close finish. But the Nuvolari summer car should have won by a lot more, but it had a leaking fuel tank. It was two and a half laps up at one point, had a leaking fuel tank, and it was fixed by a number of sort of Heath Robinson uh, fixes. One involved soap. Don't ask me how that worked. The second involved chewing gum, which seems a much more uh, suitable fix. And apparently teams adjacent to them in the in the pit lane were helping with chewing the gum they, I mean this is this is Le Mans folklore if it's true or not I don't care but it's it's just a great I story so this would have been so this is the era of the driver sitting at the very back of the car all the car out ahead of them all the engine out ahead of them um Hard fuel tanks, so the you know the idea of a of a of a kind of a bladder fuel tank that a modern motorsport fan would know. Nothing like that. That would come in the I suppose the fifties or sixties. Um, so this would have been just kind of a metal tank of some kind exactly. that that sprung a leak and start chewing yeah. your, your Wrigley's. Exactly, and you know they fixed it. It was a real battle at the end. Canetti got ahead in the closing stages, sort of ten minutes ago to go, but then Nuvolari managed to get him back and then won the race. And it's just sort of. It's that close finish, but there's an, a lovely side story to it. Yeah, and of course, all this footage is available. It might be old, but you can always see there, there's footage online. You can go and relive this, Kev. No, oh, what's not to like about two point three liter straight eight supercharged Alpha battle? That's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> but I mean, actually, the other thing that I, for me kind of lifts this is the names involved, like Nuvolari and Somme, the two of the legends. I mean, everyone knows about Nuvolari, right? You know, he was he topped a certain other top ten. He of did that we, we did. did, yes. Um, but actually, I think uh, Somme was was basically as quick like that that was the that was the combination that should have won because of the <laughs> because of the fuel situation that Gary's outlined it makes it into an exciting race and how many times has the 24 hours been decided on the final lap not very so I'm a bit of a sucker for for pre-war stuff or a chewer as you know yeah <laughs> and, and of course it's great because that was the only Le Mans appearance for Nuvolari. how cool is that to you know be a one and done I've done it now I've ticked that box there you go Kev's point about names is interesting because Canetti was there, but also Lewis Chiron, you know, another great motorsport name was there. And he he was in one of the other alphas that was there in the battle. So, yeah, it's just a nice story. All right, let's move on and, well, come almost bang up to date now. Although you wrote this article in 2019, fair to say, since then, we're not missing out anything in the top 10 list. But uh, uh, when you wrote this uh, three, four years ago, this was, uh, was quite a recent race. What's in ninth place? And this isn't another last lap loss. It's actually a six minutes to go. People talk about Toyota losing losing victory on the last lap. The problem that occurred in 2016, that heartbreaking problem with the Toyota, driven by uh, Kazuki Nakajima at the time, but he was teamed with Anthony Davison and uh, Sebastian Buemi, lost power on the penultimate lap, early on the penultimate lap. Yes, he was he did lead across the line to start his final lap. The victory was lost with six minutes to go. I was there and I was watching and I I, I was thinking how I was going to write my report of how Toyota had finally 
broken its jinx, got the monkey off its back, had finally won Le Mans after being close so many times. I couldn't believe it. I, it was like I was like being punched in the stomach. I normally don't take sides uh, when I'm at a race, when I'm, you know, there reporting. But the problem allowed Porsche to come through and to take its second victory of the night for the 919. And of course, it then went on to take a hat trick. The most amazing thing about this is that it was just such a, a minor problem. It was a, a fractured connection in a pipe between uh, the intercooler and the turbo, or between the turbo and the uh, intercooler more, more correctly. And it was a problem that would not have cost them the victory had they had more development. That was a brand new engine for that year. It had been hastily developed. They only took the decision to develop that engine almost exactly one year before. It was a new V6 twin turbo, which replaced the old normally aspirated V8 that powered the previous uh, generations of Toyota LMP1 car. And the systems weren't in place to overcome that problem. And and this is quite interesting, that Porsche actually believed that the Toyota was running out of fuel because they couldn't understand what was happening. They had to be corrected. But had that problem occurred one year later, Toyota would have won, if if you know what I mean. This is very hypothetical. I, I couldn't, I was, wasn't there, but I was obviously I was watching uh, and I just couldn't believe it. Like Because we, we've, you know, Gary's written and we talked about up to that race already several times of Toyota's inability to win the race I mean should we just should we just run through them (laughs) 94 sort of I think it was 80 minutes gear linkage Uh, 98 was uh, a similar amount of uh, time one was 80 minutes and one was 90 minutes that was a gearbox problem caused by an absence of gearbox oil that was with the GT1 in 98 99 was a puncture in the final hour you know there were you know, so those are the three, the three big ones when they got ultra, ultra close, and now they'd finally done it, but they lost it again after being even closer. I mean, I don't think this is just one of the most. This isn't just one of the most dramatic Le Mans moments. I think it's one of the most dramatic sporting moments. Like you have to remember, think of the prep. Like you're there all there there all week. Forget all the even the development and all the money time spent getting there and all the rest of it. It's a real slog for everyone involved. It's emotionally charged just to get to the end of the race. Yeah. So to be denied victory of the biggest race in the world, six minutes. I mean, uh, I, I was watching as the Porsche took the lead with three minutes twenty one seconds to go. That was on the board behind it as it went past. That that is. I mean, you can't believe it. You, I think uh, Davidson said at the time, you know, you can you can. You wouldn't if you scripted this. People just wouldn't believe it. It's been ridiculous. I mean, it was so galling because you know that Toyota wasn't even classified. That's right because it was it was too slow on its last lap because they had this problem. They they stopped after the line and they went through all those resets. You know, turning it off and on and holding the delete and, and yeah, everything else. exactly. And you know, they they got it. They were second across the line. And then I remember thinking, they're not going to be classified, not going to be classified. It was so dramatic because on the, I was looking at the timing screens and the car tumbled down. The, it didn't just go from second to the back of all the finishers. It sort of tumbled down the order, in, in so, which only added to the dr- drama. Oh, I mean, the, wow. I remember I was there as well. I wasn't working for Autosport at the time and I was covering LMP2. And I looked at it and thought, goodness me, that's terrible, but I must finish writing my report and then then when I got to the press conference I remember my my overarching feeling from the press conference was the look on the face of the Audi drivers who'd inherited third yeah just the looks on their faces 
feeling like we shouldn't be here. Amazing. Now, let's move on and let's do number eight on your list. Okay, I've gone for 1956, or I went for 1956. I'm, I'm, you know, it's been four years since I've written this, so I might want to change my mind at some point through this. Sure, that's allowed. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm happy with 1956 at eighth, and it's the great drive by Sterling Moss and Peter Collins in the DB3 S against the might of the Jaguar D-Type. Really, they shouldn't have been in the mix. But those two drivers, you know, both world-class Grand Prix drivers, they had a car that just wasn't a match for the DBR1 Aston, and they almost pulled it off. Kev, you're much better informed about this period of Le Mans than I am. At some point, we're going to talk about the best drivers to race at Le Mans. Sterling Moss was never, never won, ne- was never able to win the race, but he, he, he could have won it this year. He should have won it. This yeah, he year. was he was second a couple of times, wasn't he? And he, I think you could argue he enabled his teams to win on a couple of occasions. Uh, stay tuned for a top ten drivers who top ten one drivers who didn't win the race. He might be on that. Uh, I probably wouldn't have it quite this. High. I think having looked at the drama of both the finishes to thirty three and sixteen, I think you could probably drop this down to the back end of the top ten. I think when we get to some honourable mentions, that this would probably be the one that you'd be debating with. But yeah, it's a it is a. I think Gary's right to say if they had won, that would have well, really if, it, if we it. if they had won, we would be talking about this in a way that we're going to be talking about another race <laughs> later yes, on the- <laughs> involving a British driver and another great sort of giant killing. Oh, yeah, I'm I, giving too much away I mean, here. Aren't I just, I? So the so the, the DB3S. I mean, it, it was in its final incarnation, so it had the actually slightly uglier later bodywork on it. And Nastons of that period were all about handling, which not not the main thing you needed at Le Mans, especially in those days with the you know, no chicanes on the on the Molsar. And then the D-type, as we discussed in the previous episode, you know, was specifically designed to win Le Mans. And it's so it's a it's a classic case of machinery versus driving ability. I don't mean any dis- disrespect to Ron Plockart and Indian Sanderson on that. It's, it's drivers keeping themselves in the mix and I think yeah, I think Gary's right if the result had been the other way around this race would be immediately much more famous than yeah, it, it would than be it much higher is. than 8th yes yeah that's probably fair so um, yeah that's that but, sort of yeah it kind of makes as sense well. as it is it's just oh it's just one of those D-type victories but it, you know it was yeah it, it was it was a more interesting I mean we can't talk about 55 because that's probably a podcast on its own if we were to ever do that and, and 57 was just a Jaguar whitewash really this is the kind of in a way this is the best D-type win I suppose Under dog performances at Le Mans are many through the the law of of Le Mans and there's so many what-if stories and and we'll go on to talk about them in the recording of this podcast but I feel like those true punching above the competitive level of your machinery does elevate a race and there's certainly examples of that that you know are are reflected in, in Gary's list later on where you know perhaps giant killing victories mm. are, are right near the top of this. Don't give too much away. Well, let, let's find out if the next one qualifies as being giant killing. What's number seven? Number seven is not giant killing. No. But it's... It's, it's a battle it's a, of giants. It's a, well, I was going to say it's a giant... Uh, now, I was going to say it's a giant being slayed, so that is giant killing. <laughs> what, what else is a giant killing? But this is basically... Porsche's run at Le Mans being ended by Jaguar yeah. in 1988. The Jaguar XJR9 LM. It's a victory that's dear to the heart of many uh, British 
listeners, uh, many Autosport readers. But it's it, it deserves a place in this list, not just because of that. And that that that's significant in itself. It was a great battle between the winning Jaguar, the TWR Jaguar, shared by Jan Lammers, Andy Wallace and Johnny Dumfries, and the and the best of the Porsches, which was Hans Stuck, Derek Bell and Klaus Ludwig. And it basically, they were, it was nip and tuck through to about seven o'clock on Sunday morning. Yeah. But it was still close at the end. The winning margin was two and a half minutes. But Porsche didn't know how bloody close it was at the end. And I, and I, and I, I know apologies for swearing there because the Jaguar was stuck in gear. Uh, so what gear was it stuck in? It was stuck in fourth gear. Jan Lammers, who was at the wheel of the car, managed, managed to get it to the finish. He had been listening to one of his teammates, Raoul Bozell, who'd been in, uh, who was racing one of the other TWR Jags. And he told him about how he was going along, got to third, into fourth, heard a funny noise, went to fifth, nothing. Jan Lammers, the canny sports car driver that he was, filed this in the back of his mind a few hours later, he's going up the box, into fourth, hears a funny noise, and he had the nous to leave it in fourth. So he didn't risk Changing. finding out, yeah. is this the same problem as the sister car? He just thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm not going to go down or up through the box, yeah. I'm going to leave it. That's amazing. So, so he left, he basically had to do, I think it was the better part of an hour, in fourth gear and that included a pit stop which meant leaving <laughs> pits in fourth just give it loads of reps well i think he, he probably got a bit of a shove from his team whether that was allowed or not wow uh, and he nursed it through to the end and he didn't tell the team what was happening that there was a problem and would that would allow them to push do you think that, you think that would have changed I, porsche's outlook on the race well, it would have changed how they approached those final laps that okay. they would have been going hell for leather, whereas really they knew, you know, with two and a half minutes to go with, uh, sorry, two and a half minutes behind with, you know, twenty laps to go, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna win the race, are you? But the team did know because they guessed. This is the, the amazing thing that basically, if you if you look at uh, the Jaguar crossing the line, it, it's got a couple of other Jaguars lined up behind it. Obviously, there's the uh, traditional photo finish. But it was much more than that. Derek Daly, who was in, driving one of the cars bef- behind, had actually been told that his role at the end would be to push. <laughs> <laughs> NASCAR bump draft style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Properly. And so there's just so many elements. It is a close finish. Uh, it was a great race f- most of the way, or well, two-thirds of the way. And then it had this bizarre twist. So that that's why it's 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 up there in my list. And you've also got the drama of the Porsche, the really well-fancied Porsche running out of fuel. Well, exactly, yeah. Klaus Ludwig going a lap too far early I, in the race. I, I'm actually watching the early stages of the race right now <laughs> as Gary talks. I think it's worth mentioning, actually, that the number two Jaguar that, that Lammers obviously shared with uh, Andy Wallace and Johnny Dumfries, that was like the quick Jaguar from the start. Uh, on the first lap, Lammers go past yeah. two of them. Because they, they, they qualified the, one, two, three. They the changed the ride height on that car and they just tweaked it and it gave it a bit more straight line speed. Martin Brundle was very upset about this and I, I once asked him, 
I was writing a, a series of what racing car do you wish you'd, drove, you'd driven? And most people say the Lotus 72 or, or something like that, or the Maserati 250F. He said the, the Jan Lamas' Jaguar at Le Mans when I was in the sister car. The other one. Well, he got, he got slotted into the winning car in well, 1990. I know, I know, yes, but so. yeah, I mean, so that was the car to take the fight to the... Yeah, it was the hair that won the race almost. Um, and you've got to remember that this is in the context of Porsche has been seen off in the World Sports Guard Championship. Jaguar won it in 87. Porsche didn't contest it in 88. It was Jaguar versus Sauber Mercedes in the championship. Sauber Mercedes had the tyre problems in practice with Drew because it would have been a three... If it had been a three-way fight, it might have been even higher up this list. And it was just, you know, it was one of those... Uh, and I think the cars look cool. I, I think the Cheryl livery on the 962 is about the about the best livery that car had, actually. I and I, the I still one. love the Jaguars to And the day. Jaguars are great. I mean, it's absolutely sort of peak Group C isn't it and Group C is one of the you know one of the great sports car eras how much lap time was he losing in that last hour well that big talky V12 probably uh, came to his rescue you know lots of talk to get him out of the slow corners and out of the pits and like, out of the if pits he'd been, if he'd been in a, a twin turbo Porsche trying to come out of the pits in fourth gear is that going to be tractable well, enough to get out I don't know good, good question I do wonder how much Alessandro Pierguidi was inspired by Lammers and his uh drive to secure the GT oh, Pro right. Championship yes. in Bahrain last yeah, year. Yeah, again, again overcome, you know, going around in fifth gear. One more before we take a break. What is in at number six on your list? Well, number six, I went for 2011. Between 2006 and 11, we had some great battles, not just at Le Mans, between Audi and Peugeot, both of their turbo diesel LMP1 cars. This was the high point of it. It was a phenomenal battle between the second generation uh, 908, which internally was called the 90X, as opposed to the 9X8 of today. So sort of, yeah, it sort of, uh, yeah. That's like, On the basis that obviously you're only allowed to use a certain number <laughs> yes, exactly. for your Peugeot sports car. And, and the first iteration of the R18. So that's the first coupe Audi excluding the uh, not particularly successful R8C of uh, 1999. So Audi had a car that could do four stints on the tyres. Peugeot could only do three stints or were only doing three stints, but they could go a lap longer on the fuel. So the margin was just 13.8 seconds at the end in favour of André Lotterer, Benoit Trelier and Marcel Fassler over the Peugeot with Simon Pagano at the wheel, and he shared it with Sebastian Bourdais and Pedro Lamy. The sort of the twist in the tale, if you like, is that Lotterer had a slow puncture in that final hour. And after his penultimate pit stop, he got this puncture, and it looked like he would have to come into the pits early. And if he'd have had to come into the pits, he would have had to have made an extra pit stop, and that would have been game over, race lost. But somehow, they left him out there, they knew they had to get into a, win- a certain window to be able to make that one last stop. And somehow the tyre pressure stabilised. He got into the window and actually stopped on the same lap as uh, Pagano. They both went into the pits. Lotterer got out ahead. He had the fresher tyres. I think he got four new tyres at that pit stop and managed managed to pull away. They could so easily have, have, have lost that race. On a different day, lose pressure, tyre shreds itself, takes off the, yeah, you know, you know, one, the corner of the car. One and, lap less. Yes. And they'd have had to have made the splash. 
and they wouldn't have won the race. It's a bit Le Mans chooses who wins type thing, that, mm. that isn't it? Because uh, why did it? Why did the why did the, it stabilize? stay together? Uh, they, you know, maybe they ran over a piece of chewing gum. Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a high watermark of the of the sort of high tech LMP one battles, isn't it? And yeah. yeah, we're talking about absolutely flat chat battles at this by this day. More so, probably even in the hybrid era, because when hybrids came back, you had a bit of oh, their unreliability is been reinvented at Le Mans because they had to get the, on top of the tech so this is before that so it's just proper two top teams with top drivers with great kit just going flat out you know evenly matched right up to the very end so yeah I can see I can see completely why this is on the list it was an interesting one as well in terms of a sort of changing of the guard if you like within Audi because up until then sort of all the winning really by Audi had well not all the winning but the bulk of it had been done by whoever Tom Christensen was was sharing with oh really um and this was, of course, that famous occasion when Audi lost two of its cars to very dramatic accidents where Alan McNish tangled with a, a, a GTM Ferrari driven by Beltoise down the hill. That was used for years afterwards in photographers' briefings to sort of tell photographers to pay attention because you, they suddenly had a, an Audi. But that actually is a really good example of the, how, what we're saying about flat chat. Like that, so that's, you know, McNish was a great, is, you know, was a great sports car driver, Le Mans driver, yeah. but that was his error right by going down the inside but the reason he was doing that is because the race was won by 13.8 seconds you can't be can't afford to go oh, i'm gonna wait a couple of seconds behind it because over the course of a race that multiplies up yeah, to yeah. minutes the game had changed so you, exactly so you had if there was a gap you went for it and on that occasion he, he misjudged it but we there there was some quite major yeah some quite mass because that wasn't and even the biggest crash no, was and it? then during the night mike rockenfeller had the mother and father of all shunts on um the the run towards indianapolis and yeah that was a very scary accident and for Audi you know down to one car all of its eggs were into one basket you could only imagine the the concern that the Audi team were feeling for Rockefeller after a shunt of, of that magnitude where you know a, a GT car just turned in on him on the straight and there was nothing he could it, do he was it, sent straight it to wasn't, the scene of the accident it wasn't just Audi like that was like Gary I was there for that one and like the, everything went like the press room went quiet because the first the first bit we saw of it was some rubbishy CCTV type footage of just you could see him go off and like the angle and the speed he's coming off was like it was a hit fast forward button and then just debris up in front of the thrown up in front. You think that is going to be absolutely enormous. And then when they finally, they took a long time, understandably, to find it and then show it. And you think, but he got out and like rang his dad or something, didn't he? Well, didn't- the, f- the funny thing is that I remember by the time they sort of panned round and sort of, as you, as you said, it took them a while to actually focus on the car or what was left of the car and he wasn't in it I remember just seeing it and thinking my god that is my and you know I just had I just went sort of I had a hot flush if you like very bad feeling oh man but he got out on his own you know and that just is testament to to the strength of the cars you know and, and we've had a series of safety improvements since then what is what's on the exit of that one you know that's a section of public road and so basically probably in those days it was just white line half a yard of sort of gravelly painted a different color or something then then two meters of grass then barrier there was there was absolutely zero opportunity to slow the car down before the point of impact a very very scary crash and also basically the Ferrari just sort of turned in on him slightly turned him round sort of pretty much head first into the barrier on on the sort of outside. So. But for for Audi to pull together after that accident 
the nerves of steel to deliver that victory after you know losing two of its cars to enormous crashes it was you know a real testament to the strength of that operation which you know was really at its peak then okay we'll take a quick break we're halfway through our list and when we come back we'll get into the top five of the greatest races of Le Mans stick around all right, welcome back to the podcast. We are going through Gary Watkins' 2019 list of the top 10 greatest Le Mans races, all part of our top 10 series building up to Le Mans. This is our second in the series. Right, here we go. Business end then, Gary. Let's get into the top five. What's at number five? Well, I've gone for 1995 and McLaren's victory with the F1 GTR, the car that was uh, the supercar, the great Gordon Murray's great supercar that was never meant to race, but at GT Racing was sort of kicking off again. Customers wanted to race it. McLaren sort of felt they had no choice because if they didn't sort of prepare it for racing themselves and offer a racing version, they knew that their customers would go racing anyway. So they prepared this car in pretty short order. And then they said to the customers, yeah, you can go racing in these four-hour races, which was in the old BPR Global Endurance Series, but you can't go to Le Mans. And their customers go... They want to go to Le Mans. So they hastily did a sort of a, uh, an endurance kit and did a little bit of, they did a 24-hour test. And then were, their customers went to Le Mans and they pulled off this victory against the prototypes. Now that car should not have been able to beat the prototypes. It wasn't a great prototype grid. It shouldn't have won. But the rainy conditions sort of allowed a GT car. It's, you know, rain is the great leveller. Uh, sometimes a car with narrower tyres is able to sort of overcome the performance deficit that's actually quite quite a crucial thing in the really wet weather narrower tyres cut through uh, the rain better so that's one reason the problems for the prototypes were another reason Uh, and some great driving by the people involved in the McLarens were another reason I had no idea that the F1 the McLaren F1 with its BMW engine was never ever envisaged to be a race no, car. It was always a road car, wasn't it? And they, they made that clear when <gasps> it was launched. I, had no, I, I remember the car, obviously, you sit in the middle of it with your passengers either side, but I had no idea that it was never yeah. designed to go on track. But when it was launched at Monaco 1992, sort of GT racing, as we came to know it in the 90s, sort of hadn't got going, you know, and sort of GT racing was sort of, sort of was reborn after the death of Group C, and suddenly there was somewhere for it to race. Rich people wanted to go racing. so <laughs> And they were expensive and there weren't many of them built. So no, uh, exactly. that's fascinating. So the race was won by the the McLaren, which was entered under the Wayno Clinic banner and was run by a mixture of works personnel, personnel and people from the uh, Paul Lanzanti team driven by uh, JJ Leto, who was phenomenal that day. Yannick Dalmas, a real trooper of Le Mans, who'd end up winning it four times. And Masanori uh, Sakia, who became the first Japanese driver to win to win Le Mans and was sort of instrumental in putting the deal together. Now, that car was run by a mixture of works personnel and the Paul Lanzanti team. Triumphed over the best of the prototypes. But before I talk about that... Third place was Derek Bell, his son Justin and Andy Wallace in a in a car run by David Price Racing, which was livered in the in the colours of Harrods. And now that car could have won the race, but it had a, a clutch problem late on 
they were struggling to change gear and it dropped to third place. In second place, and this is, again, why it's a great story, was Mario Andretti. He'd returned to Le Mans after his IndyCar career, trying to win that race for the first time, one of the big races to elude him. Now, he drove Courage engine Porsche with Bob Wallach and Eric Hellery. They could have won it. And it's just like, it's just a great story. It was a sort of a David and Goliath situation. Andretti coming so close... Derek and Justin, but Derek Bell, who was 55, almost winning it with his son on Father's Day. And this is the most amazing thing. If you ask Derek Bell what his favourite Le Mans memory is, he, he won't mention one of his five victories. He talks about that day standing on the podium with his son Even on Father's Day. Even though only third, it was still the most proud moment yeah, for and him. I thought that, wow. that's amazing. And it was just... It was just one of those, sort of, it, was, it was slightly surreal because no way should the McLaren have won. People weren't even sure that it, was, it would survive the 24 hours. And obviously the fact that it was wet and the forces on the car are less certainly helped its reliability. Rain is a great leveller, isn't it? Two of the great drivers that didn't win Le Mans are in the second place car. So yes. if the result is different, it completely changes yeah. some of these lists, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I get. I, I mean, there were some great standout wet weather performances, weren't there, which enhances this. So Leto's was one. I think Derek was, was Derek quick was in amazing, the wet. and Andy as well. Uh, and Mark Blondell, I think, was quick in the wet as well. Exactly, wasn't he, at yeah. in the race. I think probably against it is, I do think we were kind of in a little blip, little uh, of, of Le Mans history. In that the, it wasn't the highest standard. Yeah, sure. so that's that's where I, I might be tempted to drop it a couple of places lower. But I mean, McLaren winning on Davey was it did grab people's attention, didn't it? I think it was a a time when GT and sports car race was in a bit of a funny place. It underlined yet again that Le Mans is still bigger than bigger than the category a lot of the time. I mean, it was bizarre as well. You know, the the, the, the identity of the car that claimed pole, the WR Peugeot. I mean, to that point, you know probably not the most competitive of fields if, if that is is able to to claim the outright pole but then this is this race is on here not because of what the qualifying result was because of the race and the unique circumstances that it created okay let's move on and in fourth place we've just talked about a race that you know when sports car racing was probably in a bit of a down we're now going to talk about a race when it was very much on the up 1999 which you know i've used the term high watermark uh, in terms of sort of factory participation many times. I probably overused it. And it's the kind of thing that we're, we're now getting to the point where we are matching 1999. And 1999 was the year when we had BMW, Toyota, Audi just coming in, Nissan, we had Panos, we had Mercedes, lots of manufacturers pitching up with proper programs try, trying to win the race who was the fight between in this year then who were the, the the two front runners well it was bmw against toyota twice over the reason for that is initially it was between one bmw and one toyota both of those cars retired as a result of accidents and it became a battle between another toyota and another bmw so initially the battle was between jj leto Tom Christensen and Jörg Müller in one of the uh, BMW V12 LMRs, which was developed in conjunction with Williams and run by the Schnitzer team. And it was against the Toyota GT1 driven by Thierry Bootsen, Ralph Kellenas and Alan Nish. That battle came to an end when Bootsen was punted off 
into the well f- sort of through the Dunlop curve into the Dunlop chicane by a, a GT car what the GT driver was doing I don't know and actually Bootson was seriously hurt it, it led to a safety car period he had to be you know properly removed from the car he ended up having a, a big back up it was the end of his career he was retiring at the end of the year anyway but it took him a couple of years to even get on with his life properly such such was the the force of the accident so that left Leto Christensen and Jörg Muller sort of in the lead by sort of approaching lunchtime on uh, Sunday became a four lap lead wow so they looked home and dry until JJ Leto went off in the Porsche curves now the reason he crashed is just like completely bizarre so basically there was a problem with the front suspension with the strut top which somehow the suspension came loose then the anti-roll bar the mechanism of the anti-roll bar dropped down caused the throttle to stick open he went off into uh into the wall at the porsche curves now the battle moves four laps back and it's between the bmw that went on to win the race which was driven by Pierre Luigi uh, Martini, uh, Joachim Winkelhock, and Yannick Dalmas, someone we've just mentioned, and the all Japanese crew Toyota, Yukio Katayama, who we remember from uh, Formula One, Toshio Suzuki, who some people might remember from British Formula Three, and Kaichi Toshiya. Those cars were the sort of the, the tortoises from, the, the, from those two manufacturers. They both suddenly picked up pace as they, were, as they began racing. Well, they got something to fight for yeah. again, you know, not and four laps behind. The Toyota would have won, but it, it picked up a puncture when it was sort, of, uh, was sort of forced, I guess, onto the curb at the first Mulsanne chicane by a BMW, not, one, not a factory car, but one of the old previous generation cars entered by a privateer. The puncture meant an unscheduled pit stop, BMW won. BMW have told me, or the engineer of that car told me, no, we wouldn't have won but for their puncture. It was just a drama-filled race and it had that that sort of last gasp battle, the twist with, you know, a, the puncture changing the outcome of the race. It had a, it had a bit of everything. And let's not, let's not forget, it also had flying uh, Mercedes uh, that year. Peter Dunbrecht going off in the race uh, skywards. Of course, Mark Webber flipping that one twice. That was that one with Mark Webber. Yeah, once in qualifying and once in the morning warm up. Which is an, which a lot of people will remember that image. And they still started the race. Yeah, we, we've got a couple of little flicks on the yeah, front. Yeah. Give Adrian New a ringer. I think it was at the Canadian Grand Prix. Yeah, and he couldn't really give an answer, could he? Which is understandable because he's. And they were, <laughs> well, yeah, think, we'll start anyway. It's fine. I think I know what fine, answer but. he gave to them if when they asked uh, if he should start on if they should start or not all the manufacturers have flying cars at Le Mans you know Mercedes would be the most sensitive yes. about that yes. so quite you know um, actually watching we've not now. seen Mercedes um, at Le Mans since no and that car was fast like it should have been a three like one of them was on the second row I think the Schneider car came through early on and it, so it was a three way again it's another it one of these been, it could have been yeah. a three way battle had they not had wow. they not suffered that, that disaster except They'd done a lot of testing and I think they were confident they had a reliable car, but yeah. The really interesting thing is that Bern Schneider has told me that that 1999 Mercedes CLR was actually the most settled of the three sort of um, Mercedes of that era. Mercedes won the FIGT championship in 97 and 98 um, and then for 99 after the death of the FIGT series, it was a, a Le Mans only attack and he said that you know all all three of those cars suffered from you know 
severe porpoising that the 97 car being the worst of those um yeah and he'd said you know if anything the 99 car was the most settled of of the bunch and it had no such indications that that would happen in testing so uh, well one thing i quite like about the fact that bmw won this is that the v12 lmr was raced somewhere else whereas both toyota and mercedes like they didn't do any other running with those and i kind of feel like the manufacturer that bothers to go and do because i think they'd won sebring they won Sebring, Sebring for- on the debut of the car, yeah, which is I'm another kind of, great story to talk about yeah, another time. Yeah, top 10 Sebrings. Yeah. Uh, top I, 12, I, I it should be. Like yeah, it should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. Does that mean we can do 20? No, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah. I, yeah, I did, 99 was on was on my, when I thought on I was going to have to do the list, 99 yeah. was one of the first ones what I put down because of the quality of the, the quality of the field, really. But isn't it amazing that it's one that TK didn't win and he still won nine? Well, yes. he has <laughs> a really interesting uh, fact that the, the times TK had his biggest leads at Le Mans, he didn't win. So he had nine victories. Twice he was more either just over four laps or just under four laps mm. ahead the first year in 99 and then the next time was in 2007 when Dindo Capello his teammate with uh, along with alongside Alan McNish they he lost a Wilnut mm. going into uh, Indianapolis and um yeah the wheel came off couldn't get back to the pits game over Somebody, and they on. and they never really sort of worked out what the problem was partly because they didn't recover the Wilnut and it's probably lying Oh, great souvenir in a forest for a, somewhere. No, that's yeah. a Marshall's got that somewhere, haven't they? And and what's amazing, it happened a couple of laps after a pit stop, and everyone was claiming finger trouble. But I remember saying, "Hang on a minute, they didn't change tires at that pit stop." <laughs> Minor detail. Someone literally just unscrewed and screwed it back on for no reason. And I mean, it's amazing, you know, reflecting back on the '99 race as well, that that Toyota never won a race. Yeah, did three races, never won a race. Well. Okay, well, that is is a brilliant event. And yet we've still got to get onto the podium for the top three years of Le Mans, which is amazing. So what did you put in third place? Well, it's one of the great ones, 1969. Jackie X in the Ford GT40, the JW automotive car, Mm. against Hans Hermann in uh, a Porsche 908. The margin of victory just won... 120 meters just going back to the the old aco way of of doing it and the most amazing thing is that they were battling over the last few laps x knew that whatever happened he had to be behind at turt rouge so he could slipstream past and so whoever got whoever got to molsan corner at the end of molsan uh the molsan straight was going to win the race so that meant being behind at the start of the straight to get you know, the slipstream in those days of course the straight was more or less four miles of flat out running no, no a long time before the chicanes and he did it only to get to the line and there was still a few seconds to go before the clock hit four o'clock and I had to do it all over uh, again oh another lap again and since I, I, I've written this he actually told me that on one of those two two laps as he sort of was coming out of Turt Rouge, he, he basically just slowed and slowed and slowed. And Herman slowed and slowed and slowed. So he slowed and slowed and slowed a bit more. Herman said, what's going on here? And took off thinking maybe X had a problem, was running yeah. out of fuel or whatever. Then X, X followed, followed on, him, got the slipstream got, got again, the slipstream, got to did it all over again first, and, and, and went through. This race is all about the finish. And I think it's all about X's skills. The GT40 wasn't a match for the 908 
on pace. Okay, he was he was a young gun, one of the you know in his prime, a Formula One you know a guy who was you know on the up in Formula One against Herman, who 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 was a veteran. Uh, so yeah. It's just it's all about the finish and perhaps all about the start because this was the race that Jackie X walked across the track rather than ran to his car because he was protesting about the dangers of the old echelon start where the drivers would run from one side of the pit straight to the other, jump in their car, not do up their belts sometimes and uh, race off. So, you know... And it worked, didn't it? Because it was the last time that they did it. Because for 1970, yes. as the Steve McQueen film shows, they were lined up in the cars. And f- for 1971, they had the rolling start that we're all now familiar with. Mm. So would you agree with me that 69 has to be right up there, doesn't oh, it? Oh, I would probably have it second on this list. Oh, yeah, really? I'd have it ahead of the next one, I think. Yeah, yeah this is, I think it's an epic finish. It's an iconic car. It's a great drive. Uh, and there's the whole, you know, we haven't there's even... There's that meant- backstory of the the start as well yeah the backstory and we haven't even talked about the 917 as well uh, in this race now I was fortunate enough to speak to both Vic Elford and Brian Redmond about this race two of the great drivers not to ever win the 24 hours Elford was pretty furious about this race because everyone was, was, he was a big 917 fan he was probably the first driver to go I don't care if it wants to take <laughs> off I'm going to drive it anyway uh, and he kind of he apparently volunteered Atwood to be his co-driver which Atwood didn't find out until years later or, or sometime later wasn't such a keen driver of it I think self-preservation was higher up Atwood's list, yes. probably. Um, and no one thought it would finish. And the Stommeling car duly went off and then broke. Yes. Obviously, John Wolfe had the privateer car that crashed and he was killed on the first lap. So they, uh, because it, they shouldn't probably have sold it to a privateer and that had, there's quite a lot of controversy about that. But actually, uh, Elford and uh, Atwood kept the car going for, I think, more than 20 hours. And of course, even just by soft pedaling it all that time they were miles faster than everyone else i think they were about four laps ahead when the- do you believe the soft pedaling thing because atwood doesn't no they the are like that. but, but elford is elford was adamant when i spoke to him about that yeah I don't- and certainly the reports at the time indicate that they weren't driving it flat but you wouldn't need to drive it flat Joe, no. would you especially once stomlin's car was well, stomlin was on pole by like by three miles. and a half seconds yeah. wasn't he um and they and it broke down the last three and a bit hours i think uh and they broke but actually redman he was annoyed for a different reason because he deliberately not gone for the 917. He thought, that's not going to finish. I'm going to go for good old reliable 908. So him and Joe Siffer, and they won pretty much everything else that season, but they had a, a one with a special body on, uh, which they think now then actually led to the gearbox going or contributed to the gearbox uh, failure. So they went for the reliable option and that broke. The unreliable car almost made it but didn't. And the old car that was rubbish and unreliable when it was first out in 1964 has finally been turned into this, you know, John Wire Golf super special with a with a superstar on it and Gurney Westlake heads and all the rest of it uh, and beats the 908. So it's, yeah, there's so many stories in that. But also I think that dramatic finish it's arguably the most, well until the Ford versus Ferrari film came out and made 66 so famous I think 69 probably the most famous finish yeah. maybe apart from 83 but that's for a later maybe discussion how old you are to, to which one of those is, uh, but I yeah. mean to your point you know the fact that you've got this amazing battle between two different manufacturers as well going right down to the wire in such cinematic fashion um, I mean I doubt that we'll ever get a a scenario quite like that again with you know cars almost like a you know cycling velodrome sort of dual race where you know no one wants to lead and waiting for the other well the chicanes did an end to that put an end to that i guess on the chicanes on the mulsanne that is so well this is the one that 
Kevin, you would have put maybe second place on the list. Let's find out what you put second, Gary. I went for 1977 because this is Jackie X's greatest race. Arguably the greatest driver, you know, we're going to talk about another driver who we've already talked about. We're going to talk about him. I, I mean, I don't want to give too much. Well, away. I genuinely haven't decided who's going to top that one list. Okay, yet. All right, it's okay. going to be Ixel Christensen. Fine. That's not a spoiler. Fair is enough. It? I put 77 second because it's Jackie X's greatest race, and he is one of the all-time greats of Le Mans. You probably know the story. Jackie X driving for Porsche, his own car that he's sharing with Henri Pescarolo, breaks early in the race. He swaps over to the second car that has already lost a bit of time. Renault is spending millions and millions of francs, French francs. Basically, you know, they they dropped way down the order. X pushed and pushed and pushed. Basically put Renault under pressure. And one by one, the, the Renaults wilted. So Jackie X came through with his teammates. And it was, it was pretty much the second car, wasn't it? With Jürgen Bart, who worked for Porsche, he sort of ran their customer sport department to say he wasn't a full-time racer mm, is probably more or less true. He was originally sharing the car with Hurley Haywood, who did very little in the car. He sort of fell a, fell a bit ill. So it was really down to to X alternating with Bart. And, and Bart did did his full sh- share. I think he picked it as his greatest race as well. well when I'm he sure used to he did. Race my life, I think he picked it as well. And then, the, again, there's the twist at the end. So basically the car has an engine problem and they have to blank off a cylinder. So they blank off one of the six cylinders of the flat six and Bart nurses it to the uh, to the uh, finish. It's just, it's just got a little bit of everything. But for me, it's arguably the greatest Le Mans driver of all time and his greatest drive. Right. So those two things combined put this in second place so i i mean i can't deny any of that and actually gary wrote a top 10 jackie x greatest races piece a couple of years ago i think Uh, and and this was in my view correctly ahead of 69 so i think on x's personal list i think this is ahead my reasoning i guess for for having them the other way around for this list is it's kind of more about the, the finish in that I think oh, no, it's got a great race you know. isn't only about the finish. No, no, it's not. But I think having having the two swapping places over the final few laps is probably uh, for me is better than a car with five cylinders kind of limping round to yeah. try and get to the end. Even though that's kind of a dr- that is drama. But oh, that's what Le Mans way. all about. Yeah, there, there is that. There is that. The, these, um, the, the, yeah. Uh, may, may it's, it's like Toyota winning. Uh, two years ago when they had the fuel tank issue and they came up with all these sort of on yeah. the hoof Heath Robinson responses to 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 their to their fuel uh, filter issues which you know they only gave a hint of at the time but they sort of explained more and more and then gave us a full explanation at the end of the year and it's 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 just a brilliant a brilliant tale i do believe we're going to be doing one of these podcasts about saying why why lemon is such a mega race why it's the greatest race in the world and and it's these stories that make Le Mans such a great race it's, it's a place where heroes are made isn't it well that leads us into the number one greatest race of the greatest race <laughs> okay so this better be good <laughs> no pressure yeah, put me under pressure <laughs> well who was that who were the people under pressure in 2008 it was Audi in the first half of the race when they had a slower car and it was Peugeot in the second half of the race and this is the race where Audi overcame the challenge of Peugeot 
through a mixture of amazing driving from Tom Christensen, Alan McNish and uh, Dindo Capello overcame the Peugeot with a slower car. The R10 turbo diesel was in its dotage. It was in its third year. I'm going to sort of put my neck out and say it wasn't a particularly good car to start with. Peugeot had come along in year two with the 908, a closed top car as opposed to the open Audi. It was the quicker car straight away and was was on pole at Le Mans in 07. In race trim, it wasn't a match for the Audi, to be fair, but they knew they had to sort of back it off if they were going to sort of get, get to the finish. One year later, they had a faster race car, a much faster race car. Audi knew what was coming, and that was rain in the middle of the night. And they had seen, during the Le Mans test day, which in those days was sort of earlier in, earlier in the year, that uh, their car was at least a match for the Peugeot in the rain, even though it was way off on dry pace. So they knew they had to stay on the lead lap. They ragged it, basically, and to, you know, through to just after, I think it started raining around one o'clock. The, the but the rain definitely it arrived. And that's what they were hoping for. And that changed it for them. And that changed it. And it and it was nip and tuck. You know, the rain was coming and going. It was nip and tuck yeah. for the rest of the race. Wow. It was just a phenomenal race. Now, there is a film about this made by Audi called Truth and 24. I don't know where the word truth comes from because there are a lot of things in it that aren't true. It's sort of... It's sort of <laughs> not, be- the, not the first corporate video to ever be made no, that tells it, the story it, it, in one it, light. It's worth watching, but there are sort of uh, a few things that are overlooked. Mm. Uh, for example, the fact that one of the reasons why the uh, Peugeot wasn't quick... Uh, in the wet was its traction control wasn't very good there was also a technical problem which was caused by sort of random track debris Mm. um, covering the radiators of the car and it was overheating and it's so that it it lost a bit of power and you you can see in pit stops that they were cleaning it cleaning the radiators Serge Saunier who was team manager at the time sort of described it as a bit like pate Uh, so which which got pate and the radiators which was was slightly comical you know there's also that twist in the tail when um the, uh, there was a bit of a shower and uh, Peugeot gambled on changing tyres. Mm. Peugeot gambled by leaving Manassian out on slicks. It didn't pay off, but it was a kind of... it was They had to do an alternate strategy to Audi if they were going to try and pull anything off. It wasn't quite the great tactical call that sort of the film tries to make out. It is. And then uh, and Christensen had a little spin. Didn't he did, he? I remember that, yeah. At, at the Dunlop chicane. Just, you know, just a tinsy little one. I know this is very boring, but I'm going to agree with Gary on this one. <laughs> because, I mean, actually, this was my first Le Mans as well. So, from a person... Yeah, okay, I mean, so that, is that subjectivity what, coming that subjectivity. in. I mean, yeah. I what, obviously, I've been watching and reading well, Gary's words about Le Mans for a long time. And this is the first one I actually got to go to in person. But the things that, I, that really stand out to me, from very early on, it was the three Peugeots and that one Audi. They were miles ahead of the other two Audis. It was... It was and 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 that and, that, and Gary's obviously explained why they needed to keep in range. I think Manish has talked about this as well before. It was, like, it was just to stay in contention because something might happen, the rain might come, whatever. The pate, the pate <laughs> and, and that, but they were so much faster than the other the other Audi. It was funny actually. Alan once told me that they were pushing everything to the limit. More than once, the car came into the pits literally running on fumes. So they were pushing the fuel to the limit because they had to do everything. Uh, and and the other the other thing is the stint that Nishi did in the wet. Like I know that they both 
Yeah, but when they took yeah. the lead, he, he, he went from a minute and something behind to a minute and something it, it ahead. Was, it was one of those, I think that's one of those standout driving performances, which is another thing you always look for in a great race. Is there someone that really stamped their authority on it? Um, so it's a great underdog story. It's part of this, you know, this LMP1 era that we've talked about. Uh, yeah, win against the odds. The cars are cool. I'd say the Peugeot looks cool in the Audi, but I'm a sucker for closed cars. I think sports prototypes should be closed. Um, so yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with this one. I don't know if James has got anything that he wants to throw in at number one instead. No, I mean this this is a, a true classic, and it's the turbo diesel, the dawn of this era that sort of culminates in the 2011 race that we discussed earlier, which was you know sadly the last one for the Peugeot. I mean it was it was a great rivalry although it didn't perhaps last for all that many years. And of course, Peugeot did triumph at Le Mans the following year in, in, in 09, but that was its only Le Mans win. I mean, you, you could look at 08 as, as, on the flip side, one of those that, that, that got away, but it's the fact that it was this superb drive against the odds that, that makes this, I think, a, a very deserved number one. And was it that Audi turned up hoping to get something from the event? But did they think, well, we'll turn up and we think we can win if everything goes in our favour? Or was it, well, they're kind of resigned to, you know, we've got a car that's past its best. We know we're not quickest. We're five, six seconds behind in qualifying. And so we'll just see what we can do. Was the plan to go and win or the plan to go and do the best they could? Because that's two different things. McNish always tells me that the level of motivation, particularly within their driver crew, was sky high because of what happened the previous year with the wheelnut flying off into the woods. He said that really motivated them. It's the plan like, was... We lost we, it last year. We're not going to lose gonna it We're going to win again. it this year. Yeah. Even think, you know you've got far inferior technology, uh, machinery. You think, we can do this? I think you have to, you know. I think wow. you have to go into that race. Well, you're never going to achieve a miracle if you don't think that you can, I yeah. think, is probably the... Yeah, you have to. Every race and driver believes they're the best kind of attitude. Yes, you? but miracles, reality needs to be put yeah. on hold sometimes, doesn't it? But miracles yeah. don't often happen. No, but so, that's why this is on the does, list. Yeah, it it makes number that's, one on Gary's list. That's absolutely. why. That's absolutely. <laughs> and I mean to put it into context as well. You know, in the preceding rounds of that year's Le Mans series, Peugeot had won all three races prior to Le Mans. So it wasn't as if there was some sort of previous form where Audi could kind of cling on to and go, okay, but in this race we did this. No, I mean in the races that led up to it, it had been a, a Peugeot whitewash. Don't forget that in the Audi Peugeot battles between 07 and 11, Peugeot came out massively on top. If you do the numbers, they won, I think, two thirds of the confrontations between them. They didn't win where it mattered. They only scored the one win at Le Mans. Yeah. And, you know, and I think we'd look back on that programme very differently if they'd have got another Le Mans win, which could have been 08, the year we're talking about, or could have been 11, or it could have been 10, when they had a problem that we're going to be talking about in another podcast. Well, there we go. That's our list. The greatest, the top 10 Le Mans races, all part of Series 4 of our latest top 10 lists. Well, we've got loads more to come as we count down to the centenary year of Le Mans this year. And make sure that you look out for these podcasts every week when we'll bring you the next one seven days from now as we look at the top 10 heartbreaks at Le Mans. But until then, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Podcast Network.